promise, we are looking for new... There we go. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes to the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, although our questions and answers are going to take us elsewhere tonight. I'd like to take a few minutes at the beginning of Wednesday night to, uh, to take some questions, and two of them have come in by email already. Philippians chapter 3, when we get to uh, this portion, we'll be in uh, verses 7 through 11. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, and more than that, more even than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ." And if we get that far, then we'll have some uh, lessons on Greek um, vulgarity as we uh, deal with some some swear words in uh, in the Greek New Testament. All right, before we do begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father to sanctify our time, to bless our thinking, and to lead us in the paths of righteousness. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. And Father, we call upon your faithfulness this evening once again. The study of the word of God is not a human exercise. It's not an intellectual pursuit whereby smarter people do better than others. Father, this is a spiritual priesthood exercise here tonight. And we are all, um, we're all here in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I thank you that he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. I thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit indwells each one of us, and the Holy Spirit uh, guides us into all things, even the deep things of God. And uh, you gave us some deep things this morning. We expect some more deep things this evening, and we just thank you for being so faithful. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Doug had an email, and his question was, what do we know about the wars of the Lord? That is, the book of the wars of the Lord. Anybody ever heard of that? Unless you've been reading Numbers, or unless you've been reading uh, in uh, the Old Testament. But it is referenced, it is mentioned several times, and so um, I'm going to answer this uh, best as I know how, and then I'm also going to uh, show some of the features that you can use if you do employ Logos Bible software. Um, it is uh, actually, it's a pretty handy thing to have if you come across something and you say, well, what in the world is that? Uh, you can even open it up as a uh, topic guide, and uh, you'll find that almost everything in the Bible that you can think of that you're wondering, well, what is that? Uh, just start typing it into your topic guide and you'll be amazed what, what comes open. So when you type in the uh, book of the wars of the Lord, it, this is what comes up. And uh, it'll show you a number of topics uh, at the top here uh, that come from your various Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias, and uh, other, uh, other reference works. I'll just open the top one, um, or maybe the Lexham. I don't know, I like them both. The Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. And I forget the passage. Were you reading in uh, Numbers 21? Is that where you were reading from? Okay. Uh, it's a lost book, so we don't have it today. But obviously they had it back then. Joshua knew about it. And Moses knew about it. It's a lost book, evidently a collection of songs on the order of the book of Jashar. You ever heard of that one? That's another one. Uh, the only Old Testament reference to it is Numbers 21.14. The quotation in verses 14 and 15, so I guess we can read this verse while we're at it. Um, therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb in Sufa. There's more questions for you. And the wadis of the Arnon and the slope of the wadis that extends to the side of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. So that's clear as anything. Um, anyway, the book of the wars of the Lord, um, we, don't, we don't know what it is, but they did at the time that it was written. Um, some scholars also believe that the, the fuller quote includes verses 14 and 15, also verses 17 and 18. Some even go as far as taking verses 27 through 30, all being excerpted, all being quoted from this particular book. Many scholars regard the book as a later composition and the excerpts as editorial glosses. Um, and if you want to read more on that, E.J. Young, Introduction to the Old Testament. 
uh, defends the possibility of its composition in the Mosaic era. I accept it in the Mosaic era, so as far as that goes. Anyway, so that's uh, the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. If you want to read more on it, uh, Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, ISBE, the Lexham Bible Dictionary is a good article. And then something else I noticed as I was exploring, there is a... um, a lesson in Logos is now producing these classes. They call it mobile ed, and, and you can actually take seminary level, graduate uh, level uh, classes. And they've got an article here. Um, there's a fact book on the Word of the Lord. Actually, I'm not going to open that up. But then there's this uh, it's Old Testament 281, how we got the Old Testament. And the professor for this course, by the way, is Michael Heiser, who I respect very highly, and I've used a lot of his stuff in angelology, and he was friends with Glenn Carnegie uh, years years ago. And uh, so he's got a chapter here, and in fact, if I scroll up, you'll see, because he talks about the book of Jashar, um, and some videos too, by the way. So the book of Jashar is another one. The Baal Cycle is another one. And if they're quoting contemporary works, they're quoting contemporary authors or or other things, that doesn't mean those things belong in the Bible. It doesn't mean that they're inspired and so forth. It just means that the Holy Spirit is using that quote for a purpose that he has in uh, in whatever else he's doing there in the Bible. So that's true for the book of Jashara. That's true for the book of the Wars of the Lord and uh, other particular sources. And I just wanted to play this, give you an idea of the kind of thing you can get that these uh, courses are available within your Logos Bible software. And so uh, this is like a two-minute video. And book has been lost to us. We don't have that anymore. There is uh, a purported book of Jasher out there that's actually early modern, 17th century, that sort of thing, or late medieval at best. And that is just a concoction. That is not the genuine book of Jasher. So no scholar I know of puts any credence in that. So that book has been lost to us. Another example would be found in Numbers 21.14, where, again, the writer talks about the book of the wars of the Lord. And we don't have that. We don't really know what that specifically was. In other instances, the biblical writer is thinking about some source that he doesn't even name, probably assuming that his audience would know sort of where he's getting the information or maybe some, again, oral tradition, that kind of thing. But the source for the information is lost. Now, in Genesis 48, verse 22, Jacob is speaking, and he says this, Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers. Uh Uh-oh. Like we froze. Okay. Well, then, so much for my demonstration. Yeah. Anyway, he's uh, Michael Heiser's a neat guy, and uh, oh, this is a serious freeze. Look at this. <laughs> Do you know all the trouble? You know, you weren't here. Robbie had a horrible time with his Apple product last week. So, I think it's just the demons. Yeah, this morning there was another glitch too, wasn't there? All right. Anyway, does that answer your question sufficiently? All right. And then, Bill, you had a question related to angels. Or was that your question or somebody else's question? Okay. Well, if this thing ever reboots, then I'll find out whose question that was. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. And all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. That's it. Somebody else had a question, too, related to angels and demons. Uh, are they the same? Are they not the same? If, uh, if, if some pastor like Theme or somebody says that they are the same, then uh, why do I say they're not? And aspects there. Um, and, and primarily, and we taught this in the Second Corinthians class when we were dealing with a thorn in the flesh and the things of angelology, there in that chapter, but the um, all right, are we back up and running? Getting there. The um, I think, for example, uh, the the demons, the differences are are striking. 
the demons uh, are chaotic, uh, almost insane. They are they are just wild, you know. And they'll they'll invade a person and they'll cause him to live in a cemetery and throw himself on a fire and cut himself and do all kinds of things. Uh, whereas the angels, the fallen angels, are are not insane. They're they're genius level uh, and they're very orderly and they're very structured in in, in what they're doing. Uh, also, I think it's curious that the demons have a king over them. That is, uh, Abaddon is the king. Uh, over the demons when he unlocks the abyss and they fled, uh, they fled the world during the tribulation. And it says they have a king over them who is Abaddon. Okay? And uh, on the basis of that, some folks come along and they say, well, uh, Abaddon just must be another name for Satan then because uh, demons are fallen angels and Satan's their king and, and so forth. I say, well, slow down now. You're, you're making some assumptions here. Okay? If demons are the same as fallen angels, then uh, then okay, I guess you can make that assumption, but why are you assuming that Abaddon is Satan? You know, and they also assume that Beelzebub is Satan, and they assume all these other things. And uh, anyway, so you have a very small list of fallen angel names if you just say, well, they're all just other names for Satan. That, that kind of narrows it down. But I, I don't see any biblical reason why we would do that. Um, to me, and I think Unger had this the best, although he changed his view at the end of his life, but early Unger taught that the demons are the offspring of the of the fallen angels and humans. And so uh, when a Nephilim dies, for example, the Nephilim is the offspring, the, the hybrid, the giant, and they're men of great stature and great size. Uh, but if, if a giant dies, right, from a flood or a slingshot or whatever, if, 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 if a giant dies, what happens to that giant's soul, right? What happens to Goliath's soul? What happens to the Nephilim when the flood destroyed their bodies, see? Because uh, you know, they're not in Adam. That's the whole point. And Unger, really, Merrill F. Unger really stressed that. They're not in Adam. They, they don't have human fathers. Like Jesus didn't have a human father. So Jesus didn't receive the sin nature, neither did the Nephilim, although presumably they received fallen angel sin natures. We don't know, right? But then those disembodied spirits, those Rephaim, uh, they they roam and they float and they they uh, they drift and it says they pass through waterless places and there's other there's other clues that I think points to the origin of the demons being the disembodied Nephilim essentially being uh, different than fallen angels and so they have a king over them which is Abaddon the the fallen angel of destruction so. Um, probably the one, and I think this too was a Jewish legend as well, that he was the ringleader in the whole procreate with human women thing in Genesis chapter 6. And so that's, uh, that's the aspect there. Alright, so now i got this back up and running and uh, got my questions. It was an email from Robert. That was you. Grace Notes Doctrine Courses say demons are fallen angels. You were sitting there the whole time and you knew that was you. Grace Notes Doctrine Course says demons are fallen angels. Do you think you could take a moment on Wednesday? Question time to say what you think there. All right, so I've done that. Thank you for the question. Some of the fallen angels are locked up right now. And the demons that get thrown into the abyss, correct. And that's, the, that's another distinction too between being in chains in Tartarus versus being in the abyss. And remember the demons that were legion didn't want to be cast into the abyss, which is uh, different than Tartarus, different than those chains. Yeah. Anyway, great questions. This builds on what we were dealing with this morning too with Sheol and, and so forth. All right, now we need a microphone to run for other questions. I guess we'll go Doug and then Lewis and then Bill. I see a good analogy to what we just talked about. Uh, fallen angels are the intelligent, whatever the... I can't hear what you're saying, Doug, I'm sorry. Fallen angels. I see an analogy. Democrats. I'll quit it. <laughs> we got Obama. Uh-huh. Fallen angel. And Antifa. <laughs> okay. The, the, the demons. Okay, all right, thank you. all right. Your, your humor is well taken. Lewis. Um, this morning we were talking about the heart. Yes. I was curious why we didn't explore an avenue that said that was another anthropomorphism. Just like... Oh, as far as God's, God's heart? Yeah, I mean... Very just well. Like, I mean, sure. I mean, just like we talk about arms and forgetting and not forgetting and... 
Right. All those things. I mean, that's certainly a possibility, right? Sure. Yeah, like the hand of God, the eyes of God. Right. You know, those are anthropomorphisms because God is spirit. He doesn't have he doesn't have a material but you see here's the difference. He doesn't have materialized material hands, material arms and so forth, but the heart, the cardia or the lave, the levath, that refers to the immaterial part of man. That refers to the innermost being. You have the outer man and the inner man. And so we talk about David being a man after God's own heart, or our heart, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's not the blood-pumping organ in your chest. That's the immaterial part of man. And so when we have a, a reference to the heart of God, um, we have to be cautious. We can't just blow it off and say, well, that's an anthropomorphism, because it's not, it's, again, it's talking about the immaterial part. Immaterial part of man, immaterial part of God, and God is spirit. And so I don't think it's 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 uh, I don't think it violates anything to say that God has a heart in His eternal nature, and I would not dismiss that as an anthropomorphism because it's not the physical heart that that that, that refers to. Okay, let's get uh, Bill and then Robert. Oh, this goes with the heart. Okay, let's get Robert and then Bill. Then we'll make our runner run more. I just remember, and I'm not sure when, but I remember you talking at, about the heart as the core. Yes. So it doesn't need to be an anthropomorphism because this is the core of God's being, mm-hmm. is his heart. True. Yeah, that dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the core, the innermost part of the inner man. Right. And we do the same thing too. We talk about get to the heart of the matter, you know, get to the core of the matter, get to the... I think core is a good term. Yes, sir. Uh, I want to go back to uh, Romans, or sorry, uh, Hebrews twelve eight that we touched that you touched on this morning about discipline. Uh, yes. Okay. And it says, "But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, and you are illegitimate children and not sons." The, my two questions is: it, it seems like there's a division where it says, "But if you are without discipline." Now, can a believer ever be without discipline? <laughs> a believer? No, I believe if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, then you are a son, and, and God will deal with you as with sons. And as it says, of uh, which all have become partakers, or it is for discipline, back up to verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there? whom his father does not discipline? That's the rhetorical question. The rhetorical answer is the son that the father doesn't love, the son that the father doesn't acknowledge, the illegitimate bastard that he says, that's not my son, and, and that. I think when it goes on to say, but if you are without discipline, I think that's, a, that's a for the sake of argument kind of an if. That's kind of a, you know assuming that you are without discipline, what does that make you? you know? And then it follows that. Since we've all been become partakers, it's not his audience. It's it's just a generic if or who, whosoever. Um, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So all there are all believers, right? Okay. And uh, one last question back to Proverbs twenty eight three. When you uh, twenty eight thirteen? Oh yeah, tw- sorry twenty eight thirteen and First John one nine. Right. Um, can you just expound a little bit more on that? The, the connection of the two the the set the 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 repentance and the or the confession and the forsaking okay I just didn't hear what the question was oh sorry can you expound on that a little bit the the the, the connection of uh proverbs twenty eight thirteen and first john one nine oh okay because it was crummy this morning you want me to do better tonight <laughs> yeah okay. that's that, that that's that that was the right. words I were thinking first john one nine says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the verb for confess in 1 John 1, 9 is homologeo, to logeo, to say homo the same, right? So you're going to homologeo, you're going to say the same. That's homologeo, okay? And the thing is, though, some people have a bad uh, concept of confession that is not in agreement with God. And so they're not confessing the sin as sin. And they're not in agreement with God as to the sin. And they're really kind of, in, they have, I think, the idea of, of admission instead of confession. 
Like they're admitting what they've done. They're fessing up to it, right? They're just admitting, yep, you caught me, I did that, right? But they're not repentant and they're not agreeing with God as to the sinfulness of that sin. And that's why I like what Proverbs 28.13 does because it says, he who confesses and forsakes. And that, I believe, shows the true mental attitude, the heart attitude behind homologeo, if it's going to be a legitimate homologeo, that uh, that you're confessing and forsaking, that you're agreeing with God, this is sin, I don't want to do this again, I want, I want nothing to, to do with this. And so that's the, that's the idea there. And if, if you're sinning and you think that your, your rebound, your, your confession is going to get you back in fellowship even though you full well intend to do that same sin against, again tomorrow or the next day or next week, then you, know, you can't pre-schedule your sins and have, uh, you know, have some kind of a, a preventative inoculation with a, you know, confession of sin is not a vaccine that you can do ahead of time and make it all better. And so I, I really do love what, what Proverbs twenty eight thirteen because it has that idea of confess and forsake. And, and forsaking was the whole point of what we're looking at in chapter 15. So just to go just one step further real quick, um, let's say that you confess that sin and you agree, yes, it was a sin. This is not just a confession moment that, yeah, I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do wind up doing it again, although it wasn't pre-planned or, or whatever the case may be. So will right. that still fall under the, the forgiveness then? No, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're still forgiven. I, I think there's a big difference between, we all have besetting sins. I mean, there's sins you're going to confess 800 times between now and, and December or, or next wow. week, tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> We're going to have these sins over and over again, but the, the difference is, if 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 you've already pre-scheduled it, pre-planned it, you already have, you know, it's on the calendar for next Thursday. That's that's what we're talking about. And so you can't confess it now and be restored to fellowship when you really haven't stopped. You're you're but still involved with it. That would just to me would just seem like arrogance. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. All right, thank Me- you. Uh, Pastor Theme, no, no, Pastor Eichmann calls it mechanical legalism. That you think you can go through a mechanical confession process and be restored to fellowship, and you're not even in fellowship at no point. Yeah. All right, well, appreciate those questions, and it uh, looks like we're rebooted and up and running, so we can get our slideshow going here, which is uh, real good for Kevin's sake. If I didn't get my slideshow running, I was going to use him for my uh, visual aids. All right. Well, we are talking about profit and loss, and we're talking with accounting terms. I count all things to be loss, and this is accounting term, right? And uh, in verse 7, he says, whatever things were gained to me or profit, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so, uh, you know, if you're an accountant, like, like the, I married a CPA, and she helps sort these things out for me. That way I don't confuse my profit and loss statements with my balance sheets, okay? Balance sheet is something else. That tracks your assets and your liabilities. All right. But here we're tracking profits and losses, okay? But the point is, if you have something that's in one category and you say, you know what, I'm just going to move that to this other category, all right? Instead of counting this as a profit, I'm going to write that off as a loss, and that's what he essentially does here. He takes everything that would be a human advantage, all of his Jewish education, all of his high credentials, because he was thriving. He was outdoing the best of them, and, uh, and he was the best of them. And, and, uh, and, he, and he just tosses it. So verse 7 is the, is the past completed action. It's a perfect tense verb. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's a past completed action with present ongoing results. It's a done deal. And then he builds on it. He gets really excited to build on it in verse 8. And he starts off with a real complicated uh, string of uh, particles and, and conjunctions and emphatic statements. And he says, and even more than that, but also I count, I presently am counting. I presently am counting. So he already had his original write off. Now he has the present ongoing day by day, moment by moment. He just doesn't stop. He keeps on doing it. All day, every day, I presently count everything, all things to be lost in view of 
the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And that value is incomparable. That value is so infinite, nothing else compares. And that's what we want to get into as we talk about that here tonight. So as we talk about this, let me get past that. And uh, I think that he did it during his three days of blindness. I think while he was sitting there waiting for Ananias to come and lay hands on him and restore his sight, he was sitting there blind for three days in Damascus. And I think during that three days of blindness, we know he was praying, we know he was receiving visions. And I think it was in that first three days then that, uh, that he recategorized every gain of his uh, Pharisaic training and just recategorized it right there on the spot. If it wasn't then in Acts 9-9, at the very latest it would have been during the three years he spent in Arabia, that it couldn't have been uh, later than that. At the very latest would have been during his Arabian sojourn. So whenever that was, he uh, he did it. Okay, And uh, I'm not going to repeat all this. We did talk about kurdos and kurdino, the noun for gain and the verb for gain or win like in church discipline when you've won your brother, or in marriage when women without a word have won their husbands. It's a, it's a profit, it's a gain uh, at that point. And then of course there's the loss, the zamia. Zamiao is a loss. And uh, normally it's in the context of a tragedy. Normally the loss is so sad because it's so unnecessary. And yet here uh, it's, a, it's a very glad surrender. You've lost it, you've hap- you're happy to have lost it. You know, you lost it in good riddance, you know. Um, couldn't, couldn't lose it fast enough, as it were, in, uh, in Philippians 3.8. Uh, some of those other passages, though, the loss is, uh, is really a tragedy in that regard. And then the last phrase I want to pay attention to in verse 7 is this one that says, for Christ's sake. Those things I have counted as loss for Christ's sake, or for the sake of Christ, okay? And this is one that, um, I don't know, I'd I don't want to make a big, well, yeah, I do want to make a big deal out of it because I want to make a big deal out of it because this is so lost, I think, in, in our culture and, and even to the point that uh, when someone hits their thumb with a hammer and they, they want to swear, they want to get angry, and they'll say something like, oh, for Christ's sake, right? Which is ludicrous. You know, nobody smashed their thumb for Christ's sake. But the point is, is we use those idioms and we use those expressions and we don't even realize there is a biblical basis for these expressions. What is it we are doing for Christ's sake? Okay, We should be doing everything for Christ's sake. In all that we do, it should be for the sake of Jesus Christ, for His glory, for His good pleasure, for the Father's good pleasure. If we're not doing it for the sake of Christ, what, what are we doing it for? For us? You know, Are we doing it for our sake? What are we doing this for? And so I do like sake studies. Uh, to be a fool for Christ's sake is, uh, is the expression of 1 Corinthians 4.10. And uh, I don't think there's any other circumstances you'd want to be a fool, right? You want to be a fool for my sake? You want, you want to be a fool for some, some human? What do you want to be a fool for? But to be a fool for the sake of Christ, well, okay. All right, because nobody wants to be a fool. Who wants to be ridiculed? Who wants to be mocked? I mean, seriously. That's not, nobody likes that. But if it's for the sake of Jesus Christ, and if my being uh, ridiculed and abused and whatever, if that spectacle serves to point people to a suffering Savior, well, I mean, seriously, what am I going through in comparison? It's nothing. So I might as well just uh, suffer for Christ's sake and be a fool for Christ's sake. Anytime you study the the verb sake, okay, I don't care what language you're doing it in, um, Greek, English, Hebrew, whatever, um, the directionality is critical. Very rarely is it reciprocal. Very rarely is it, is it bi-directional, both directions simultaneously. Generally speaking, something gets done for somebody else's sake. It becomes sacrificial, it becomes provisional, it becomes a blessing. And if you confuse that direction, I think you end up in some, some terrible uh, apostasy or heresy or or terrible circumstances in that regard. So uh, directionality is essential in your sake studies. And we got through Matthew and John on Sunday, so I'm going to pick it up here um, and we can finish this slide and, and gain some new ground here tonight. Um, not Matthew, but Mark. Do you remember Mark 2.27? I don't even remember, I've slept since then. Mark 2.27 
Sabbath was, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Okay? Remember that? And Jesus was making a big deal out of this because the Pharisees are a bunch of legalists and the Pharisees were flipping it backwards. They had it exactly backwards as if somehow, uh, you know, man was made for the Sabbath. That uh, Jesus says, you got that backwards. Sabbath was made for man. The purpose was to allow us to imitate God, allow us to rest, allow us to reflect on God and His glory. It was not uh, supposed to be an enslaving thing whereby a bunch of legalists could you know, beat up other people for being terrible Sabbath keepers and, and, and you know, use religious rules to control people's lives. That's, uh, if you flip it around backwards, you're just doing some terrible, terrible things there. So Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Get it right. The, direction, the directionality is, uh, is key. Likewise in Mark 13 and verse 20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened those days. Okay, and that's a prophecy of the upcoming tribulation and the fact that Satan was bound and determined to, uh, could have even conceivably, you know, exterminated all life on planet Earth. But Jesus says, nope, I'm not going to let that happen. His, uh, his sovereignty will keep that from happening. And so those days get cut short. He actually preempts His return. If Satan thought he could bank on the 77s and bank on 1260 days and bank on, you know, knowing the day or the hour, <laughs> Jesus says, nobody knows the day or the hour. Only my father knows the day and the hour because the father's going to send him back preemptively early uh, before the conclusion of that 70th seven. So uh, anyway, we have uh, the promise of it there for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the elect. Okay. Uh, so directionality is important. John twelve thirty, when they hear a voice out of heaven, he says, "Hey, that's not for my sake, that's for your sake." John twelve and verse thirty, because yeah, they hear this voice, and uh, Jesus says, "Father, glorify your name." And a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. But Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. And uh, boy, if that's not a critical study, okay? You think Jesus went to the cross for his own sake? Of course not. He went to the cross for us. We're the sinners. And uh, we're the ones that were separated from the holiness of God. And so uh, the things that were done for our sake is, uh, is critical. Romans 4. You get into Romans 4, of course, you're dealing with uh, justification and the great doctrines here related to uh, the salvation we have in Christ. And as it says here, Romans 4, and it's verse 23, 24, 25, about justification by faith. And here's, uh, here's Abraham. Let's see. Abraham had a promise to become the father of many nations. God even renamed him from Abram to Abraham. And uh, which was either, you know, a sick, twisted joke or it was a precious promise that this old guy was going to have a baby, more than one. And uh, it says, um, in the presence of him, this is verse 17. In the presence of him whom he believed, that is personal presence and intimacy, fellowship, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to what had been spoken. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Both of them were past the stage of life where those things were functional, right? And, uh, you know, she was no longer having her female thing, and he was no longer having his, uh, well, I mean, his body was as good as dead, okay? And this is pre-Viagra in the era here. And yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. Now, with respect to this, it says it was rec- credited to him as righteousness. 
That's the point. Okay, This is the whole theology of justification by faith right here. I skipped over verse 21, I shouldn't have. Being fully assured that what God had promised, He was able also to perform. God said it, He's got to do it. Doesn't need our help to keep His own promises. Now, when we get into 23, 24, 25, the, the chapter concludes with these repeated uh, points. Not for His sake only was it written that it was credited to Him. Not for His sake only. In other words, if it's exclusive to Abraham, then we've got a problem, okay? And uh, no, it's not for his sake only, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So the directionality here is key. Is it exclusive to Abraham? No, because it's also for our sake as well. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised up for the sake of, because of, our justification. So these sake studies, I love them. I think these sake studies are great. Okay, And they help us to, uh, to lock in on what God was doing and why. And if it's for the sake of this and not for that, let's not get wrapped up in that. Okay, I think folks do. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 9 and verse 12. We get all these gender wars and all, these, all this confusion men and women and arguments. <laughs> All right. 1 Corinthians 11. And, uh, you know, in the church, what are we doing? And uh, interestingly enough, even though we've got, I'm headed for verses 9 and 12, there were prophetesses in the early church. There were women that were gifted with communication gifts. Okay? And, uh, and you'll notice, of course, she has to have her head covered, and that's, that's significant. Um, all right, so 11.3 says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Okay? And now the, the, even the noun head is being redefined by feminists today, and that's just tragic. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Okay, so we've got a physical head on the top of our shoulders, but then we have the doctrine of headship, same word, that, uh, that demonstrates authority. It demonstrates authority, and that's what feminism doesn't want to deal with. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. All right, and that's as shameful as the as the prostitute that's walking the streets there in Corinth. Anyway, so there's distinctions here, men and women distinctions, the male and female distinctions as designed by God. And um, notice uh, in verse seven, a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. You notice they're different, okay? Different designs, different purposes, different functions. And uh, not saying superior or inferior, we're saying different. And uh, together they fulfill the plan of God. All right. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. We're talking about originally. God didn't create Eve and then look around and say it's not good for Eve to be alone and take a rib out of her and make a man. Okay? That's backwards. God created Adam. Adam looked around. It's not good for man to be alone. Took, him, took a rib, made him a woman. That's the point. And uh, not just me saying that, verse 9 says that. Indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake. That is backwards, that is upside down, that is rebellion. But woman was created for the man's sake. That's the purpose, that's the design. One of them is the helpmate of the other. Okay? Because in his aloneness, he needed the help. And not the other way around. Okay? And sadly, uh, the Council of Biblical Manhood Womanhood has redefined submission and has redefined helpmate. And now, essentially, they want their husbands to be the, the wives' helpmates. And, um, and if she doesn't submit, that's his fault too. 
because if he was a better helpmate, then she would submit. And uh, there's aspects there. Anyway, don't get me going. Um, but the directionality here is the, is the key. The directionality is the key. And Paul is making this point explicitly. It was not this, it was this. All right. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels and the aspect. Remember, there are no girl angels. And so the whole provision of, of man and then man's helpmate is uh, part of what the angels are learning as they're observing our redemption and the plan of God unfold with us. Okay, Because no angel was given a helpmate for their purpose in the angelic stewardship. However, verse 11, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man nor is man independent of woman. We have this mutual uh, provision and this is what we see here. As the woman originates from the man so also the man has his birth through the woman. All things originate from God. All right. Then the last thing I think we'll we'll deal with here is uh, in these sake studies comes from Ezekiel. And uh, back in Ezekiel 36 kind of thought Cornelius might be headed here this morning. He had an Ezekiel question for me this morning. But in Ezekiel 36, he's making them promises of what's going to happen when he brings them back from captivity. Remember, Ezekiel ministered during their captivity. He should have been a priest. Once he turned 30, he would have been a priest, other than the fact that uh, the temple was destroyed and he was carried off into captivity and um, never did get to be a priest in a temple. But he did get called to be a prophet, and he did speak and say, thus saith the Lord. And some of the promises for bringing them back are, are wonderful. And he says in Ezekiel thirty six twenty two, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. <laughs> okay, I'm going to bring you back from captivity, but don't think it's because of you guys. Okay? It is not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among all the nations where you went. You see, God promised to send them into captivity and to send them for how many years? 70 years, okay? And so now if he does not bring them back, what does that say about him? Yeah, that's right. It says, it says he's a liar. It says that he doesn't keep his word. It says he can't predict the future. It says, it says a lot of terrible things about God. He had promised to send them into captivity and to bring them back after 70 years. And so he's making it very clear that he's not bringing them back because they've repented. And he's not bringing them back because they deserve it. And he's not bringing them back because he just can't help himself. They're so great. Okay, They are the chosen people, but they are obstinate. They are obstinate. You go to Daniel 9 and Daniel's trying to confess the sins of his entire nation because Daniel knows that the 70 years are almost up and they're just as wicked as they've ever been. And that's what it says here too as well, by the way. He says, because you have profaned my holy name among the nations where you went. You know, he scattered them and they're still profaning his name. So it's like God for his own sake says, I've got to get you guys away from those Gentiles. You're, uh, you're ruining my reputation here. <laughs> you're, you're slandering me in front of these Gentiles. So I'm not bringing it back for your sake. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations where, which you have profaned in their midst. So anyway, and it goes all the way down through here and then in verse 32, and, and we start to have, by the way, some. this looks forward beyond the uh, Ezra and Nehemiah returnings and actually looks forward to the millennium when Jesus brings them in and He gives them a new heart and they start the millennial kingdom. Gives them the Holy Spirit and, and these great things are happening here. Verse 32, I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. And you know, we all can claim this. When He saved you, is it because you deserved it? Did he, he didn't even save you for your own sake. You ever think about that? He saved you for Jesus' sake. He wants to provide a bride for His Son. And yes, there's a little fringe benefit along the way that says you get eternal life and you don't go to hell when you die. But that's not for your sake. That the Father is providing a bride for His Son. So There's something to consider. All right. Anyway, there's, there's other passages similar to this, but that one in Ezekiel just jumps out at me. All right. 
Now we're going to move on to from the past tense to the present tense. Above and beyond. Above and beyond that initial adjustment. Okay? Because the verse 7 is the past. He said, I counted all things and, and counted them, but now it's present tense. Understand the difference? So above and beyond that initial adjustment, Paul continues to make ongoing profit and loss adjustments regarding any and all future gains <laughs> regarding any and all future gains that human viewpoint might be tempted to claim. Okay? And so he wants to make sure it's not just a one-time write-off. It's not just a one-time thing. He continues to maintain this attitude. And it's going to get harder for him, actually. Because uh, of all the Judaism that he wrote off, now he's going to have to start to write off some legitimate uh, church-age fruit. Some legitimate church-age production. You know? You can imagine, after you've written a book of the Bible, you know, he wrote Galatians. You know, a human being might get a little, uh, you know, proud of that. Say, wow, (laughs) I wrote a pretty good book there. Thanks to the Holy Spirit, you know. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit helped. And uh, I wrote this book called Galatians, and it got added to the Bible. Okay, and then he wrote 1 Thessalonians, and then 2 Thessalonians, and then, you know, God's using him to write multiple books of the Bible. Okay, this canon had been closed for 400 years. All of a sudden is reopened again, now in Greek instead of Hebrew. And look at what Paul is writing. Look, I mean, you could think, wow, you might boast in such a thing. You might count that as gain. Paul says, you know, I think it's better just to know Jesus, okay? To know Him in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of the sufferings being conformable into His death. And compared to that, eh, okay, so I wrote 13 books in the New Testament, okay? Yeah, you know. I mean, Moses only wrote five. I mean, who does Paul think he is? All right. So he continues to, uh, to have this uh, adjustment in his thinking. Now, (laughs) you probably won't get any of this, and I apologize. But maybe you will, and I hope you do, because it's fun. If you're a a language geek, if you like like just seeing strange things and go, wow, how does that happen? Okay? Um... In the New American Standard, it says more than that. In the Christian Standard Bible, it says more than that. In the New King James, it says yet indeed. In the uh, King James, 1611, it says yea, doubtless. Kind of like yea, doubtless. Anyway, a remarkable Greek particle launches a long, complicated, and emotionally passionate sentence. You ever get just so emotional about something you're trying to say and then all of a sudden, you know, just a bunch of words start spilling out? Okay? Yes, you do. You know what I'm talking about. Okay? This is Paul right here. And the Holy Spirit takes all of it and puts it on paper and gets, inspires it in the canon. Menunga is, is, is extraordinary even by itself and it's just the middle word out of three words. Um, but once we get to verse 8... It almost seems like verse 7, the, the whole point is made in verse 7, but Paul wasn't satisfied with that point in verse 7. It's like he felt, I've got to expand on that. And so he does. And actually 8, 9, 10, 11 is one long Greek sentence. He didn't even stop to breathe until he gets to verse 12, okay? So more, even more than, but even more also than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things count them but dung so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay? That's all one great big sentence. And he launches into it here with Menunga, and um, on the contrary, yes, but even also more than that, it's a, it's a um, intensive particle, or, I'm sorry, an emphatic particle 
that stresses either an opposite contrast or an intensified more than that. So it's either a strong but or it's uh, not only that, okay? It's, it's very uh, adversarial and intensive. And um, anyway, this is what we have in Luke eleven twenty eight, Romans 9, 20, Romans 10, 18, and here in Philippians 3, 8. The actual string is Allah Menunga Kai. I'm not even going to talk to you tonight about Allah or Kai because Allah is a very strong but and Kai is either an and or an also and this is a, a nevertheless also, nevertheless not only. So but nevertheless not only also, okay? And, and even, it's, it's worse than that. It's not just three particles strung together because this one here all by itself, Menunga is three particles crammed together to make a new word. Men is a particle. Un is a particle. Ge is a particle. Okay? And uh, if you shove all three of those particles together, what do you get? Menunga. And then you put another particle in front of it, put another particle on the end of it. You got five of them in these three words. Allah menunga kai. And uh, it's like he's rambling. All right. More than that. More than that. You know, you ever talk to somebody and he makes a statement and it's, you know, like an understatement. And you say, what? Are you kidding? And then you want to amplify it. Because the person you're talking to just didn't do a fair enough job describing it. Okay? That's what's happening here. He becomes passionate. So Luke eleven twenty eight. Kind of. Not every manuscript of Luke eleven twenty eight has a menunga, but uh, several do, and uh, so it's worth looking at. Um, yeah. So Jesus is teaching, and then a bunch of women are coming along. Jesus was saying these things. One of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, Menunga. <laughs> On the contrary. He says, Rather, no, no. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Okay? He just stops this woman in her tracks and says, What are you talking about? Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So you see how confrontational, how adversarial, how passionate that, uh, that response is. All right, that's Luke eleven twenty eight. 28. In some manuscripts, there'll be a menunga there. In Romans 9, 20. In Romans 9, 20. Here's a text that some people thrive in. Um, we're talking about this this morning. Calvinists love this. I've been hit with this a lot of times. Um, talking about the sovereignty of God, talking about what He does here and uh, who He has mercy on, who He does not have mercy on. And um, so you will say to me in verse 19, why does He then find fault? Or who can resist His will? I mean, if God sovereignly makes everybody do everything they're going to do, well then, you know... Why does he still find fault? It's not our fault. He's making us do this. Menunga. On the contrary. On the contrary. Oh, that's not right at all. Here, think about this. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? So anyway, if, you, uh, if you're going to impugn the fairness of God... Uh, either on a Calvinistic basis or an Arminian basis, or I don't care, any kind of basis. If you're going to impugn the character of God and His fairness, um, then that requires an emotional, immediate, on-the-contrary response. Okay? On the contrary. On the contrary. Who do you think you are? Oh, I forgot. I'm using an old slideshow here. Okay, we can work with it. I had fixed some things I didn't like. Like I didn't like this little thing there. We'll work with that. All right. 
On the contrary. How about next chapter over in Romans 10? But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? But on the contrary. Indeed, they have heard. Okay, Far be it. How can you say such a thing? Okay, They have heard. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So you think this is the case and the Apostle Paul is saying, oh no, no. On the contrary. On the contrary. The voice has gone out into all the earth. So it's very forceful. It's very strong. Uh, it's introduced here in Philippians 3 that not only has he uh, counted all things to be lost, but more than that. On the contrary, even above and beyond. More than that. I continue to count all things as loss. Not just what I did in the past, but everything I continue to do now, presently. So it is an actual string of Allah menunga kai. It's a conjunction with an emphatic particle with an emphatic adverb. And uh, I'm not sure why I wanted to read this to you, but we'll bring it up and read it to you. Here we go. Are you familiar with the UBS handbooks? Yes, no, maybe? Okay, no, okay. UBS is United Bible Society, and uh, they've got a handbook for all 66 books of the Bible. And what the United Bible Society does, they're the ones that produce the Nestle Elond uh, text of the Greek New Testament. They produce Hebrew manuscripts in the Old Testament. They, they work with the original languages. And they provide a linguistic commentary, uh, uh, not theological, not, uh, they, don't, they don't plunge into, into theological debates, but they do express all things linguistic. And so they work, they, they help Bible translators. They help if you're a, a missionary and you're trying to figure out how do I, how do I put this verse in Bulgarian or whatever? How do I put this verse in Ukrainian or what do I do? And so they, uh, they, they give you the, the Greek, they give you the semantics, they, they give you the sense, and then they help you out if the language you're working with doesn't have a word for that. <laughs> okay? If the language you're working with really can't express what, what the Greek is expressing. And so it's a, it's really, it's a fun um, handbook, and I, and I enjoy it. Verses 8 through 11 are a complicated long sentence in Greek. The sentence needs to be restructured into shorter sentences in order to preserve clarity of thought. And that's probably good, you know. Um, we don't like long run-on sentences either. Paul uses a series of particles, yes, rather even, as a forceful introduction for an important statement. The combined force of these particles indicates that his statement in verse 7 is inadequate and he feels constrained to reinforce it. The force of these particles has been expressed in various ways in the Jerusalem Bible. Not only that, the New English Bible, I would say more. Barclay, yes, and more than that. Um, The TEV, not only those things. The TEV translation makes explicit, I forget what TEV stands for, today's English version makes explicit the fact that the things which Paul counts as loss are not limited to those that are already mentioned. Nothing can compete with the supreme gain of knowing Christ. The contrast between verses 7 and 8 is clearly brought out in the TEV rendering. Those things versus everything and loss versus complete loss. I mean, that's how the uh, USB recommends that, uh, USB handbook recommends that you render that. It may be necessary in some languages to make more specific the expression, I reckon everything as a complete loss. And uh, it goes into some of the things we haven't gotten to yet in the rest of verse 8. So I'll let that go. All right. Anyway, it's passionate. It's passionate. He's stringing together this uh, Allah Menunga Kai and he's just off to the races with uh, the expressive and uh, with the uh, the rest of what's stated here in verse eight, verse nine, verse ten. So not only has he reckoned everything, he continues presently. I presently count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And we're going to discuss this. This is far more than just getting saved. This is any more than you know getting married. Okay, the wedding is the easy part. You got the rest of the marriage to, to know that person. Okay? And how well do you know them on your wedding day? And how well do you know them on your 50th anniversary? Or your 80th anniversary? Or however long God lets you uh, live together. All right? 
And so the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. That's not on the day you get saved, that's in the day-by-day intimacy of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay? All right. Well, Sunday morning, Lord willing, rapture pending, uh, we will pick up here. Thank you, Father, for this day, for this night. Thank you for your grace and and, uh, provision. Thank you for the new nursery provision that we have and and look forward to redeeming that and blessing the parents to uh, attend more Bible classes. And Father, uh, just thank you for uh, all of your grace provision in uh, in all that we do. Uh, Thank you for Doug's biopsy yesterday. Thank you for so much, Father. You are so faithful, day by day, moment by moment. Great is thy faithfulness. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.